agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government of the government love. Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I'm joined by the professor of law at Chase Law School, Ken Katkin. Welcome to the show, Ken. It's always great to be back, Trey. You know, it is fun. You know, last week I actually did it with uh, Mike and Jay, and it, it almost felt like cheating on you, Ken. I don't know. <laughs> it's okay. I don't know. You, I don't know. You, 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 need, you need to play the field, Trey. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, just to give our listeners kind of a preview of what we're going to be doing, here are the stories that are going to be coming up this week. We're going to be starting, as you might imagine, with the leaked opinion the draft opinion from Alito from February. And, and we're going to be handling that like two stories. We're going to be talking about the opinion itself, and then we'll also be talking about the nature of the leak. Then next, in a week that has lots of leaking, we're going to be talking about what came out of the U.S. intelligence community. And it appears that we're helping uh, Ukrainians kill Russian generals. After that, we're going to move forward and, and take on some more court cases. We're going to take a look at a court case, uh, taking a look at citizens living in territories and and the U.S. versus Valero. Uh, We're going to take a look at the midterm elections, what happened with J.D. Vance in Ohio, what's going on with Trump's uh, endorsement. And if we have time, uh, we'll get to some additional Supreme Court cases. But that's what's going to be on dock. So we're going to take just take a brief moment and then we're going to get started with the Alito draft opinion. Okay. So, Ken, I think without question, the, the, the story that has gotten the most oxygen in the room uh, this week was the leak of Alito's draft opinion from February on the Mississippi abortion case. And there's, I mean, there's two major portions that I want to get this, right? And I, I want listeners to know that we're going to spend some significant time here because both the legal question as it relates to privacy and abortion is important. But also the opinion being leaked is important. Uh, they're not necessarily tied, but they're, they're, they're equal of important. Now, for some context, the Supreme Court has evolved today. And Ken and I, we've talked about this. We have talked about this a lot on the show to be basically the final arbiter of the Constitution. Now, I don't know, Ken, we've never actually uh, talked about this. There isn't a lot of evidence uh, on my side of the of the house, scholarly house, to suggest that that was the intended final role. Um, but that really is in the modern uh, interpretation. That's the role that the court's taken. And one of the reasons uh, that we see the court operating the way that it does is because the court is supposed to theoretically in some way be above politics, be outside of politics, be uh, uh, neutral to politics. It's a body designed to kind of do its work outside of the public eye. Uh, and so the power of the court, in part, comes from this nature of being kind of mysterious. As a matter of fact, one of the ways you can kind of see this right off the bat is notice, you know, justices still re- wear robes, right? Uh, that, that's a tradition that dates to the Middle Ages. Uh, in, a, in the academy, for Ken and myself, uh, the only time you're going to see us in robes is at, at graduation. We've been talking about graduation time before the show was uh, uh, airing. Um, but even the practice of just wearing those robes more or less all the time ends about 1810, i.e. The, the early 19th century. But that's not really the big point. The point here is that the court still does this much Middle Ages origin stuff because it's kind of part of the mystery of the court. And another element to kind of this mystery of the court is the idea that these decisions ought to be shielded from the public. So the public shouldn't be able to influence or to have decision-making power over the way the court was going to decide. So the Supreme Court, for example, it even has a lunch location for clerks that is away from the other locations so that they can discuss cases without being overheard by others. Now, Despite all of this, though, this week Politico got its hands on what we now know is an authentic draft of the majority opinion written by Alito, the first draft back in February. And Chief Justice John Roberts has indicated that that was, in fact, accurate. Now, that doesn't mean that's going to be the decision, but that is, in fact, accurate and that there's going to be an investigation 
because in his words, it kind of strikes at the heart of the court's power, its mystique. So, meanwhile, the opinion itself is an overturn of Roe v. Wade and the corresponding case of Casey. Um, so I wanted to lay the land out here a little bit, Ken, because I know that we're going to get technical on this. So for listeners, it's worth understanding a little bit of a background here. In Roe, the court determined that there was this right to privacy, and it included inside of this right was the right to abortion, but only to a point. In the original conception of Roe v. Wade, state interests and a woman's right to privacy shift based on a trimester system. And in Roe, the big uh, moment is the third trimester. Now, one of the big legal questions here is what's the location to the right of privacy? Now, the court articulated in Roe that it comes from a bunch of rights found in the Bill of Rights, but most specifically, it comes from the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. Now, the 14th Amendment, it's the first section here that's going to be really important. And as a matter of fact, uh, as a political scientist, I can say it's, it's kind of key to understanding a lot of the Supreme Court's decision making, even as it relates to this. It says this. It says, quote, all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the law, end quote. So that's the 14th Amendment. So the key takeaway here is that there are certain privileges and immunities that states cannot violate, and these include life, liberty, and due process. So the 14th is central to this understanding. Now, on the show, as a matter of fact, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we've had questions about, like, what about the Ninth Amendment? Well, the Ninth Amendment doesn't really ever get used. Uh, instead, it's the Fourteenth Amendment here. As a matter of fact, the Fourteenth Amendment is also the mechanism by which the Bill of Rights have been incorporated to apply to states, which is why all this can uh, move forward. Okay, so that's Roe. What about Casey? Casey is this really wild split decision. It affirms the fundamental finding of Roe, but it ditches much of the content of the ruling. The question for that divided court was one of undue burden. Is the state placing an undue, undue burden on uh, a woman? In the court's words, quote, is there a substantial obstacle in, the, obstacle in the path of a woman seeking an abortion before the fetus attains viability, end quote, directly from the majority opinion in Casey. So, What's also historically unique for Casey is that the majority ruling, because of a complex set of concern, uh, uh, concurrences, was actually only written by three justices. So this brings us to the draft opinion by Alito, and we're going to get to, we're going to start with the content of the opinion. Now, one of the interesting things about this is, um, well, we'll get to that. So Alito is overturning, at least in this draft row. So this is the first draft. We don't know what the final opinion of the court's going to be. But we can talk about the 96 pages opinion itself. I'll just start by saying, Ken, that it looks like to me that Alito is just bringing to bear his textualism and says, look, there's no right to an abortion in the Constitution. And further, unlike other privacy rights, abortion deals with either a life or a potential life. And therefore, it has to be treated differently. He's, he goes on to basically say, look, Roe is terrible constitutional law. And his words, quote, Roe was egregiously wrong from the start, end quote. So I want to start there. Ken, I set up a lot of things. You've read through the Alito uh, uh, um, draft opinion as yourself. What are your takeaways? Well, you won't be surprised to hear me say it's it's a nakedly political opinion from a, a corrupt Supreme Court. You know, I've, I've voiced that refrain a lot, and I will voice it again now. Um, I, you know, I think that the 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 real problem with the 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 corruption of this opinion and the corruption of this court um, is that it it cobbles together some arguments that sound plausible, um, but only in an extraordinarily cherry picked way. Right. So um, so, for instance, you called it a textualist opinion. 
Um, but it's not a textualist opinion because a textualist opinion would have to deal with the Ninth Amendment as well. That's part of the text, right? Now, now the reason that the court doesn't deal with the Ninth Amendment, which which I think you said correctly, um, is simply that there's no precedents that interpret the the Nineteenth the Ninth the Ninth Amendment. But if, but, Amendment, but, yeah, but yeah. Ninth Amendment, yeah. But if but if you're talking about a, a precedents, then you're not talking about text anymore, right? If we're going to go by precedents, then we should be going by Roe and Casey because those are precedents. Um, if we're going to be going by text, then and not paying any attention to to precedents then you need to include the Ninth Amendment as part of the text. The text um, says the enumeration in this constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. Th this opinion literally violates the, that literal text. It denies or disparages rights because they're not enumerated. That's exactly what Can the Ninth I, Amendment I, I, says I shouldn't be done. I want to start. I'm glad that you started there, and I'm happy you did. I didn't want to. I didn't want to back you in a particular corner. Right, right. Okay. Yeah. So one of my long-standing issues, as a matter of fact, this is one that Mike and I both agree on, and we've talked about on the show, has been the jurisprudence of the Ninth Amendment, which is basically a zero, right? Uh, <laughs> and, and by that I mean is is that in cases where we have found additional rights, the court does not use the Ninth Amendment. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, if you take a look, um, as uh, constitutional law professor Lawrence Tribe uh, puts it, he says, quote, it's a common error, but an error nonetheless to talk of Ninth Amendment rights. He puts this in quotation marks. The Ninth Amendment is not a source of rights as such. It is simply a rule about how to read the Constitution, end quote. As a matter of fact, when Justice O'Connor came to Miami University of Ohio back in the day, this was something that we as graduate students asked her about. And, and she basically said, look, the Ninth and Tenth Amendment, it's a truism. It just means that the power of, the, of Congress uh, is limited. The end. There's no specific rights in there. So I'm, I'm curious about that, Ken. I've often seen that as being a flaw across the, the, the ideological spectrum. Would you talk into that a little bit? Why, yeah, yeah, why is there no Ninth Amendment jurisprudence? And it seems it seems I think for the average person really unusual. Well, it, yeah, it's 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 it should be insignificant, um, but, but but opinions like this make it significant, right? Disingenuous opinions like this, because the 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 question of whether the Ninth Amendment is relied upon or not um, only matters. Um, if you if you think that um, it's the only possible source of unenumerated rights. Um, now, um, Alito is claiming to be a textualist because he's saying, well, Roe is based on the 14th Amendment and the 14th Amendment doesn't have anything in it that he thinks signifies unenumerated rights. So therefore, there's no unenumerated rights. But but the way that the way the court has generally um, uh, done legal method um, is to, to, to develop its own lines of precedent, right? And so it has developed lines of precedent, um, as you mentioned, under, under the due process clause of the, the 14th Amendment. So the 14th Amendment says, no state shall deprive any person of liberty without due process of law. And that word liberty needs to be defined. And um, as you mentioned, Roe and, and um, Casey both and other cases since Casey, um, all define um, the word liberty in the 14th Amendment to include uh, reproductive choice. Um, and um, so whether you base that on the word liberty in the 14th Amendment or whether you base it on the 9th Amendment is of no practical significance. And, and since the court um, you know, does in fact have doctrine that it has developed about how to interpret the word liberty in the 14th Amendment and a kind of principled jurisprudence tries to make use of the precedents and the doctrine that are out there rather than just throwing it all in a trash heap and writing on a blank slate like um, Alito wants to do here. You know, th that's why we've seen we've seen it's just path dependent. We've seen a line of development of interpretation of the word liberty in the 14th Amendment. And so it provides for a more principled basis for discovery of unenumerated rights to, to rely on those precedents um, than to just throw it all out and say, well, I'm, I'm going to write in a blank slate. But but if, if Alito is going to throw it all out, if he's going to say precedent means nothing to him, text means something to him, then I think it is incumbent upon him to address the whole text, including the Ninth Amendment. I mean, I think that's I mean, I think that's fair. I've off, again, I will say that it I will disagree a shade in the fact that I don't think the, the, that it doesn't matter where you think the rights come from in the Constitution. So if you take a look at Griswold, for example, the 7-2 the, the decision that um, comes around contraceptives and privacy, the court 
makes loops, in my opinion, to effectively exclude the Ninth Amendment, I think in part because there's a fear that there might be too many rights in the Ninth Amendment. That often seems to me to be, now I'm just kind of being ideological here. Uh, I, I don't think either liberal or conservative justices have been comfortable with an amendment that could be as expansive as the Ninth Amendment is, which is, again, why you have to look only to, say, the minority opinion in, in Griswold to get somebody to say, hey, look, we got to pay more uh, uh, serious location to the Ninth Amendment as being a locus uh, uh, to rights. But in Europe, what you're basically saying is, well, okay, we didn't do it that way. We put it in the 14th. But whether you find it in the 14th or the 9th, you've got to find it somewhere. Yeah, I mean, Griswold, you know, I don't want to make this into a common law seminar, but Griswold um, is is kind of a, a, a complicated case to talk about, because partly because of the point in time that it, it, it gets decided around 1965, because, um, you know, not, not to get too deep in the weeds here, but in the early don't 20th century. get into the weeds, Ken. Okay. I'm encouraging you. <laughs> in, the early tw- in the early 20th century, um, from around 1900 to around 1937, um, the, the, the court um, had interpreted the word liberty in the 14th Amendment to protect a lot of um, unenumerated rights, what the court called liberty of contract. So the, the right to work for less than minimum wage, the right to work without getting paid overtime, the, the right to work without getting any protection of worker safety laws. And there'd been this 30-year period where all of those kinds of liberties um, were, the, were the liberties in the 14th Amendment that the court was interested in. Uh, and so they were striking down minimum wage laws and overtime laws and maximum hours laws and worker safety laws. And, um, uh, you know, famously, President Roosevelt got sick of that and he threatened the court packing plan in 1937 um, and the court backed down. So that was followed by a 30 year point in time where the court was doing something a little bit more like what Justice, Ale- uh, Justice Alito is talking about here and just saying, well, we, we made a big mistake in those liberty of contract cases. Really, we just made up that right out of whole cloth. We shouldn't be protecting unenumerated rights. And the court actually did stop protecting unenumerated rights from the, from 37 to 65. Now, and that included all unenumerated rights. So, you know, we didn't have things like Roe versus Wade yet. We didn't have the kind of privacy rights that you were talking about in other cases. We, we didn't, and we no longer had liberty of contract. So we had this, this 30 year window where um, the court just didn't do that. Now, beginning in 1965, literally with Griswold, um, the, the, the court, that's its sort of first effort um, after the 30-year lull in, in trying to come up with a theory of, um, well, if, if we're, if we're going to get back in the business of protecting some unenumerated rights, you know, what, what, how, what tests should we use to identify which unenumerated rights are, are protected? And the Griswold opinion, there's actually four, four different opinions that, that all vote to protect the right to contraception, which is an issue in that case. And they give four different standards and four different tests and four different justifications. So there is one, as you mentioned, about the um, Ninth Amendment, which actually does get three votes. There, there, there's, a, there's a one vote opinion only by Justice Harlan that gets no other votes. And, and that's the one that wants to go back to using the word liberty in the, in the 14th Amendment. Um, and there's some other ones that want to use the penumbras and emanations of the Bill of Rights. Um, but it's the one vote opinion by Justice Harlan, not the Ninth Amendment opinion, not the not the um, Penumbra's and Emanations opinion that eventually gets adopted um, by the whole court that gets um, really sorted out f- for the final time um, in, in the Casey decision in 1992. Um, but during that time, the, the court is both um, rehabilitating some of the early 20th century cases that had thought to be overruled. So for instance, there were early 20th century cases about things like the right of parents to send their kids to private school instead of public school, um, or the right of parents to teach their kids the German language, which was illegal in Nebraska for a while. Um, Some of those cases where um, claimants won their cases in the early 20th century, those cases had been thought to be overruled in that period from 1937 to, to 1965, but the court starts reviving those. It starts protecting other kinds of rights, like the, the right of um, 
uh, a grandparent to to take in her two grandchildren to live with her, um, even in a town that had an anti-group home ordinance that would have prohibited that, um, or or the right to refuse medical treatment. Um, so there wind up being all these lines of cases, and 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 the the tests that are used in those lines of cases are really based on some of the tests that came from the early 20th century cases. So the court does that so that it can, um, I think it pursues the use of the 14th Amendment theory rather than the 9th Amendment theory, primarily so that it can borrow um, some legal tests that existed in older opinions that can be used um, to constrain the discretion of the court. So, so the path dependency serves a purpose. It, it may be it may be accidental that they wound up going down the route of liberty in the Fourteenth Amendment rather than going down the route of the Ninth Amendment. But the purpose that it serves is that it provides us with judicial tests that have been used in a lot of cases already. So you have precedents, and that provides opportunities for constrained legal reasoning. Um, and so what Alito does here, which is 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 so disingenuous is he says, well, I'm just going to throw out all that. I'm going to pick and choose the parts of those tests that I like and not the parts of those tests that I don't like, You know, none of which are rooted in the, in the text of the Constitution at all. Um, so for instance, he continues to say that he will protect some um, uh, unenumerated rights if, if those rights would be protected under um, a test that has said uh, if they're if they're deeply rooted in Anglo-American legal history and legal tradition, um, well, that test isn't in the text of the Constitution either. So it, it's just like he's he's cherry picking parts of the precedents that he likes. He's tossing out parts of the precedents that he doesn't like. He's claiming that's textualism, but he's ignoring the text of the of the Ninth Amendment. And in fact, he's even ignoring the meaning of the word liberty in the Fourteenth Amendment. So you know, I I don't think there's any recognized method of judicial interpretation um, that that could be supported by this opinion. If, if he was serious about it, he should go back to the 1937 disposition and just say, well, we're not going to protect any unenumerated rights. But but he doesn't do that. No. So let me, I mean, as I read, so I, I read the, the, the 92 page opinion, took notes, thought about this carefully. It seems that one of the major moves that, that Alito makes is to say, and to slice things to say, look, Privacy right may exist, and that's a potential problem, right? And I think on that front, we agree, right, that, that, the, that, that the right to privacy is, is central, whether we're finding it in the 14th or the 9th Amendment. Where he then slices where I find some agreement is effectively to say, though, well, but is the right to abortion something that actually fits in the privacy right, and does that portion of it makes sense. So what do you say about that move, his opinion? Yeah, I think reproductive choice um, squarely fits within the 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 the, the right. It's, and privacy isn't really the contemporary terminology. That that is the terminology that was used in Griswold and in Roe, but it was superseded um, in in Casey in 1992, which stopped using that word. So the the contemporary terminology would be um, uh, autonomy, dignity. And mm. reproductive choice, and uh, um, and I think the the rights to um, human autonomy, human dignity, and, and reproductive choice, um, uh, which which are recognized in in Casey, absolutely have to be part of the word um, liberty in the Fourteenth Amendment, or absolutely have to be part of um, th- those unenumerated rights that um, shouldn't be denied or disparaged merely because they're not mentioned in the text. Because what what could be a, a deeper invasion? against human dignity or, or human autonomy um, than the government literally hijacking someone's body for nine years and, and forcing them um, uh, to, nine to, months. to- For nine months, yeah, I'm sorry, nine months. Uh, yeah, I, I was getting Because I was saying, if you meant the whole <laughs> yeah, lifetime no, 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 of a child, no, 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 maybe longer I mean than months, that, yeah. it'd be 18, but, but, you know? But <laughs> literally hijacking someone's body um, for, for nine months. I mean, we're hearing constitutional arguments this year about people saying the government doesn't own my body and shouldn't be able to make me get a, a, vaccine, a vaccine for, for COVID. Um, well, it's a much more severe um, incursion into bodily autonomy, uh, into um, uh, human dignity, um, and into you know really the, the the right to make one's own most personal choices uh, for for the government to say we're, we're hijacking your body for for nine months, we're we're making it go through you know all kinds of changes that are gonna um, you know be quite burdensome. 
um, uh, and uh, and 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 that's the, that's the state's business. That's not your business. That seems to me exactly the same. You know, the flip side of the same coin as like the one child one child policy that they used to have in 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 China. And I don't think Alito's opinion grapples with that. But if the government um, uh, uh, can can tell women that they must bear children, you know, I don't know what principle stops the government from telling people that they 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 can't bear children or they can't bear more than one child. Child, you know, it, it's it's really the issue here is reproductive choice. Well, I'm I, I will talk into that a little bit. So, and this is a space where I'm not, you know, I, I don't find company with libertarians, um, and, and and so I I think to talk about each side of that is in fact different because I think a lot of this hinges, and I recognize this is a difficult question. It hinges onto the extent to which we ascribe personness. And at what point we describe personness uh, uh, to what uh, Casey calls potential life uh, and what uh, Alito uh, uh, changes that language towards being a child, right? I mean, I, I think it all hinges there. And so your, your question there is, would be valid to the extent that it would assume that the opposite direction had the same moral incumbent of there being a potential person. And, and I think that's the thing. So when we talk about reproductive rights as somebody, again, I'm just going to be straightforward about this. I'm not, not particularly libertarian on this front. I, I, I mean, I know there are some. Uh, um, anyway, point being is I'm, I'm probably more conservative on this front, classically conservative. But um, I mean, when you talk into that, doesn't it make sense to at least have to say, when we're weighing these in the way that, again, that's exactly what Casey and Roe were attempting to do. When you're weighing uh, uh, state interest, it all hinges on how much or to what extent this is a reproductive choice versus it's a choice that involves another human being. You know, I, I, I understand that argument. Um, I, I would go even further than the Casey Row decision went on the pro-choice side, though, because, you know, I'll, I'll explain what those cases did and then why I think they were actually um, inadequately protective of liberty. And I would go farther. Um, so so okay, I, I think okay, yes, yeah, so I think what the what the what the what the Roe and Casey court both said about the question you just raised is they, they said, well, um, the, 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 the fetus um, is a potential human life from day one. And it gets more and more uh, closer to being a, a human life each day. Um, and so um, I think they both put on a continuum that the state's interest in protecting the, the, the potential human life in the fetus gets, gets to be more compelling of a, of a state interest literally every single day from the, from the moment of conception to the moment of birth. Um, I and think then that's they, a, fair, they, a fair summary. It, yeah. And then they, they balance it against the um, countervailing interests. And they say, but but women have interests in bodily autonomy and reproductive choice, which are always compelling as well. And the reason that they draw the, the viability line um, is, you know, th they say, um, you know, not as it's sometimes characterized in the in the um, uh, in the media that suddenly the, the fetus becomes a person at viability, because um, I don't think they say there's anything like that that goes on. They just say the fetus gets more and more like a person every single day for nine months. But but I think they say that the um, the, the state's interest becomes more compelling. Um, at, 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 at viability. So that the state's interest in uh, protecting the potential human life crosses a threshold from being less compelling than the woman's interest in, in bodily autonomy uh, to being more compelling. And I think one of the main uh, ways they derive that line is from the, his, the old history of English common law. And they say that the, the English common law used to use this old phrase called quickening. And so quickening was a, a sort of a, a, an earlier term that roughly tracks what we would now call viability. I guess it meant when you could detect, you know, if you, if you touched a woman's uh, pregnant woman's stomach, could you could you tell there was a baby in there? And uh, um, so um, at, at English common law, um, uh, there, there wasn't, um, uh, any the abortion wasn't a crime at all, but the, the, um, the, there wasn't any consequences, uh, legal consequences, um, to, to, um, a, a death before quickening. So that like, even if there were cases where pregnant women were murdered and, you know, whether that could count as, um, uh, an additional crime, you know, that would turn on, on quickening. And so they sort of borrowed that line. 
Um, but another thing that the Roe court talks about, which I also found compelling, is that right up to the moment of birth, not just to the moment of quickening, um, in, in every single usage in uh, American law, um, we, we never count um, a, a, a fetus as a person for any other purpose. So, um, you know, fetuses can't own or inherit property. Fetuses can't um, uh, enter into um, contracts, even if they're even if their parents technically sign the contracts on their behalf. Um, uh, f- you know, if, if 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 a pregnant woman is murdered under American law, we do have fetal homicide statutes. So that could be a count of homicide plus a count of fetal homicide. Um, but it wouldn't be two counts of homicide. Um, so th- there's literally at the time of Roe, not a single context um, in American law where um, uh, fetuses are ever counted as persons. In fact, the 14th Amendment itself, and you already quoted it, um, says all, you know, all persons born, born or naturalized in the United States are citizens. Um, so a, a, a person conceived in the United States but born elsewhere um, wouldn't be a citizen of the United States. So we don't, that's not literally defining personhood, but I think it's connected that we, we don't consider someone to be a, a U.S. citizen if they were conceived here. They have to actually be born here. Um, and so all, all standard and customary usages of law um, uh, you know, just use birth as the line. And so I feel like they were sort of making a political compromise um, to go all the way back to quickening that I think had less um, basis in legal principle than just using the, the, the birth line. Um, but, you know, they used it. And I think another reason they used it is that it had pretty massive societal uh, support and, and really still does. The, the idea of that balance. The, the, yeah, the viability line rather than the birth line. That they it would have been unpopular to protect the the right of uh, 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 right to abortion right up to the birth line, but it was it was always popular and is still popular with the general public to um, it protect it up to the viability line. But now, when you had started that, you said that you actually took issue with Roe and Casey on those fronts. So in, in, yeah, I would, in I, would have view, pro- I would have gone I would have protected abortion rights right up to the birth line. I, I wouldn't have stopped at the viability line, but but that's not what they did. So can I, I mean, I'm, I'm curious, I, I think a lot of it hinges on this. Why? Morally? Well, for the same reason, for instance, that it's not illegal. Like if someone asks you to donate a kidney so that they could live and, and you say, I'm, I'm not going to donate the kidney um, and then they die, um, you know, that's not a crime, right? That, that's part of your bodily autonomy to make that decision for yourself. And I think it's directly applicable. I think that. I mean, I'll just be honest. You know, when you say that, I, 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 you know, again, you know, don't take this too much. It, that kind of analogy actually kind of disgusts me slightly. And I think sometimes that's one of the reasons that there can be difficulty talking into this space, because I, I don't think that the, the, the morality of a kidney uh, versus something that could be a person is a valid one. Well, if somebody needs a kidney, the, the person who needs a kidney is a person already. But yet you could kill them by not giving them your kidney, and you're not, you're not going to be in, in, in jail for that. Yeah, but that's still fundamentally different than taking something, again, assuming whether or not we're going to uh, count it as a person, and actively destroying it, right? So, you I mean, it's, it's one thing to make an incumbent claim on somebody for a, a positive connection that requires something of them. It's another to suggest that I could actually dismantle someone uh, for a particular outcome. Because in this case, that, that's precisely – now, again, if you're dismantling a kidney, no big deal, right? We, we, don't, we don't ascribe moral personness uh, to kidneys I, I'm not and talking about lungs. the person. I'm not talking about the personhood of the kidney. I'm talking about the personhood of the person who needs the kidney. I think we do ascribe personhood to people who need kidneys. And they will die if nobody no. gives them a kidney. Yeah, I, I, I track with you there. I agree. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, 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 the fetus is just like the person who needs the kidney. The, the, the fetus is um, a person who needs to make a claim on someone else's body to live. And, uh, and so I don't think any other person, you know, owes, owes, owes that to, to, to any, other, any person. Um, even, if, even if we want to call the fetus a person, that doesn't change my calculus. Even, even the same way, you know, I, I think in my example, a person who needs a kidney, of, of course, is a person. But I don't think it gives them the right to take someone else's kidney. And I don't think the fetus has the right to take someone else's body, in this case, the mother's body, and hijack it for nine months. 
Now, I mean, and that you've actually outlined right there, just to be clear, that is the the classic libertarian position, which is right. You know, nobody. And again, that's why I will say here, I recognize that I'm parting company with fellow libertarians on this one. I get that. I mean, again, I can understand and appreciate that point. I can get that. However, I still have a difficult time. I still have a difficult time suggesting that that therefore means that we can, in this case, dismantle what could be life, which, again, I see as being slightly different than someone. Yeah, in other words, this person doesn't need anything else to continue to potentially exist other than not to be dismantled. This person needs to occupy someone else's body. That's true. That's, that, at that's, least a, that's at least a significant – that's actually a more significant incursion than, than just taking a kidney out of somebody's body. I don't know. I, I, I don't know if I would agree. I'd have, I, I, have to, I have to cognate on that more, Ken. I'll be honest, and I don't want to have a flippant response. But my, my initial response is to say that I can't articulate well at this moment, not quite – yeah. Yeah, I think so it's a very major. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, and I got to say, I, I, I feel like, um, you know, things like the vaccine mandates. I, I'm, I, you know, I might seem inconsistent here because I'd be on the other side of that, and I'd say the government should be able to force everyone to have a vaccine mandate. But that's because I think a that's an extremely minor incursion into someone's bodily autonomy. And it, it does serve the compelling public health interest. So I, I would subject, you know, what in con law is called strict scrutiny to something like that. But I think a vaccine mandate can satisfy that strict scrutiny. Um, I don't think a, a, a far more um, significant incursion could. And I, I actually think even Alito might think it would be unconstitutional if the government um, ordered that when someone needs an organ transplant, the government could force someone else to, to give the organ. Um, but I don't know how he would distinguish that from, from what he's writing here in this case. Well, I mean, again, I think the distinguishing factor comes down to, although, again, I'm being inarticulate and I recognize this. I wasn't sure this is exactly what we're going to hit on. So this is not what I had actually prepared for. But, um, I, again, I think that there is a moral difference between the two circumstances as you're outlining because you think a fetus is more important than a born person. No, because of the nature of what is being done and requested. What's being done is just that uh, the, the, what's being done and requested is the, 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 the person that the law is operating on is refusing to sacrifice their own body to, to help somebody else. No, um, again, the, so if you come to me and say, look, I'm dying, Trey, I'm dying, I'm, Trey. I need your, I need your kidney. I, I need your kidney, right? I would still say that that is different than me saying, look, Ken, I think I, w- I actually want to, I want to take you apart to make my, my life different and or easier? Well, the only thing that uh, a, a woman seeking abortion is saying is that she doesn't want to donate her own body to help somebody else. And that even if you want to count the fetus as a person, uh, I, I don't think we normally have obligations to, 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 to donate or dismember our own, our own bodies. Um, to, to help somebody else, I, you know, I think it's a it's a noble thing to do that. It's a noble thing to donate a kidney, and it's a noble thing to to bring a child to term. Um, but but we don't put legal obligations on people to to do the, to to do that. Except that now we're going to do that in the case of abortion. At least in some potential locations, yes. Yeah, at least in some potential locations. Well, Ken, why don't we get to this? I mean, it probably the yeah. not as exciting side <laughs> right, of this, right. but also yeah. talk about the leak side of this as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, because this is, you know, as a historian of this side of things, this is unprecedented in the fact that we actually have our hands and can have a a conversation 
about this 96-page opinion. Because, again, we need to I – mean, it's worth recognizing that although we don't know precisely how the court does it, we have a, a fairly good understanding of what the court does, which is they're going to ha- – they have drafts. They have briefs come in. They, they make a decision, the rule of four, to make a decision about which of these is going to come. In other words, they're going uh, to grant – uh, uh, the writ associary. They're going to hear these. They're going to get uh, granted time. They're going to have oral arguments. After oral arguments, we recognize that they go into conference. This conference uh, is completely behind closed doors. We know that they chat in order of seniority. Uh, and then we know that we have this opinion writing phase of decision making where individuals, it's not as if they've already like, you know, their votes are on and they have to be on. Rather, during the opinion writing itself, we can see votes come and go. As a matter of fact, uh, once upon a time, this is something that we had suggested on the show. It happened with Chief Justice Roberts when it came time uh, for um, what we kind of broadly call as being Obamacare. There was a lot of reason to think that he had shifted his vote, uh, making the minority the majority uh, later in that drafting process. So talk a little bit about the leak, this process, and, of course, the perennial question, which is, what do you think the goal of the leak was? Yeah, the, the last thing you ask, you know, I, I have some speculations about it, but they're contrary to each other. So I don't um, I don't I can't come up with an answer on what the purpose was. I can think of some some speculations. Um, so it, it, it a few things, I think I, I do think that, uh, you know, the media has been focusing so much on law clerks. I was a law clerk, and I am actually positive that this leak didn't come from a law clerk. I, I think it's inconceivable, um, and that, that that will be proved not to be the case. So I, I think the uh, that what I would focus on would be either, you know, people who are in um, even more backgroundish roles, like um, you know the people who who work for the the printing office for the court or run the photocopiers or or things like that. Um, you know, I think that's possible. Um, and then I think also. Um, the justices, or in in the case of Justice Thomas, um, you know his spouse. Um, you know, I think those those are possible also. Um, the reason I think a law clerk can't have done it, really, just from having been part of that culture, is that you know the the law clerks are straight out of law school. Um, they're rule followers. They're ambitious people, career oriented people, um, who you know are are trying to you know do things right. And and not to have you know not to have something happen that will blow up their whole careers. So you know the the rules are very very strongly um, uh, imparted to them. The rules of secrecy that there's there's almost no obligation that that's that's more important to a law clerk than to um, uh, uh, maintain secrecy of all this stuff. And if if any of them breached that in a case like this. You know, they would know there's going to be an investigation. They would know there's a chance that it'll come out who did it. And, you know, that that would ruin their entire careers. And and these are, you know, very career oriented people who um, have agreed not to um, make these kind of leaks, who I think don't, you know, typically, you know, like anyone at a, who's new at a job and all the law clerks are you know only there for a year. They're all basically new on the job. You know, they're not um, fed up and disgruntled with it yet. You know, it's it's, a, it's an incredible opportunity to be a Supreme Court law clerk, and you know, I think they just want to you know do it do it by the book and 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 do a good job. You know, I, I think it's much more likely that the justices who have very large egos, um, who've been there long enough to really be fed up with each other, um, who you know have life tenure, in fact, you know, um, you know, I think that, that that they could reach a point where they're just like, you know, I'm I'm I'm. Uh, I'm I'm sick of my colleagues in one way or another, and you know I'm gonna you know do something. And but the one way or another thing is the harder part I think for me to pierce. Uh, and I I can think of two theories basically. One would point towards a right wing justice. One would point towards a left wing justice. So I, I think it could be a right wing justice. And I and I would probably look at Justice Thomas and particularly his wife Virginia Thomas, who I'm I'm quite sure he shares all this information with. Um, you know, they might think, well, you know, Alito's got these five votes and uh, Roberts is working on maybe Kavanaugh, maybe Barrett um, to, um, to, to to pull them away to a more moderate opinion. You know, the, both both opinions, the Roberts opinion and the and the, the, the Alito opinion, both would sustain the, the Mississippi law. But one would purport to overturn Roe and Casey and one wouldn't. Um, and so I think the leak could serve the purpose of. Um, embarrassing those justices who've already tentatively voted on the Alito side 
um, you know, that they wouldn't change their votes because it would look like they only changed in, in response to the, the public backlash and they wouldn't want to do that, you know, so they would just be locked in. So I, I think that might be one motive for why um, someone from the right would leak it. Um, and I certainly do think Virginia Thomas characterologically is capable of that. Um, you know, on the other hand, if you're going to ask why would someone from the left leak it, um, some some thoughts I had are, you know, first of all, you know, this was a little noted, but this wasn't actually the first leak uh, in this case. I mean, it was the first leak of the text of an opinion, and that part is unprecedented. Um, but but people um, talking to reporters, insiders talking to reporters in ways that they shouldn't about deliberations inside the court is not only not quite so unprecedented, but it already, it already happened in this case. I mean, the the Wall Street Journal the Wall Street Journal had already published an editorial a few days earlier that extremely accurately reported what was going on, right? It said Justice Alito's writing the opinion, he's got five votes right now, but Roberts is trying to peel off the other two, and those other two shouldn't be peeled off, they should hold firm. You know, that was in a Washington Post editorial just a few days earlier. So somebody leaked that. I mean, in, in that case, I could say it's absolutely certain that somebody from the right leaked that. So I think that it could have um, you know, aggravated the justices on the left enough that you know one of them might have said, well, you know, if, if these right wingers are already leaking internal deliberations to the Wall Street to their friends on the Wall Street Journal editorial page, so that there can be a Wall Street Journal editorial that uh, you know sort of tries to browbeat um, uh, um, uh, Kavanaugh and Barrett to hold firm, um, you know that that's already a huge breach of, of of the trust and the secrecy we're supposed to keep. So we're going to have to fight back by throwing some throwing some light on that. So I could see that being a motive also. So now a final question I thought about this, and that is, what do you think about in terms, I mean, a lot of, uh, at least in political science, a lot of the questions have revolved around what actually explains uh, judicial behavior. And, and one of the lar- longstanding models is the attitudinal model, which basically said, look, justices are political actors. They, they have always and always will be political actors. That's the way we best understand them. And, there, and there's a whole trajectory of judicial scholars who, uh, who, who predict and understand judicial decision making, not through any particular legal basis, uh, but through, uh, through pre-existing political models. Again, we call it the attitudinal model. You're talking about like Oftentimes Siegel, and, the, Siegel and Spaeth? I'm sorry. For example, talk- yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I happen to know Siegel. He's a friend of my parents. But that's... Uh, oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah. I, I mean, well, that's interesting because I, I, you know, I've obviously read a lot of his work, you know. Um, yes. That, it, I, I wasn't citing everybody because, again, you know, this is a... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but, yes. yeah well, so I, I think actually the attitudinal so, model is a little more subtle... Um, than what than the way I think the judges are currently behaving. So as I understand the attitudinal model, it's not so much that the judges are just simply um, politicians in robes, but it's a little more complex than that. It's that the the judges are actually trying their best to follow the law, but they're a little bit blind to their own uh, ideological predispositions. And so they, they, they have attitudes and those attitudes will get reflected in their decisions. Um, but not because they're just simply saying, well, I'm the judge, so I'm king and I get to decide, you know, I get to decide every case to have the outcome I would prefer, but more that they just are a little bit captive to their own attitudes and, and uh, ideology. Um, that, that is absolutely that correct. Yeah. No, yeah. you're absolutely correct. And so what, where I was going from that then was, and so here then is the, so I'm glad that you maybe you summed that up better than maybe I did, was to say, do you think that this leak is going to, in other words, make that even more so true. In other words, as the, the 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 bits of the mysteriousness that the court uses in an attempt to out that, I have seen a lot of scholars even say, look, it's just time to think of the court as being a political institution. Yeah. That's what I think saying. this is a yeah. turning yeah. point for them. in other words, in other yeah. words, taking that another step further and saying, well look, we already know that this is kind of a behind a a background uh, variable that explains what what's happening here, but could it become the foreground variable? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I mean, I've been saying that. So that's what I was going to say. I think the attitudinal model was developed, you know, over the past thirty years, but I, I don't think it it describes the present court that well because you know the the attitudinal model would assume that you've got five Supreme Court justices 
who are genuinely committed, you know, a majority on the court genuinely committed to trying to interpret the Constitution as they understand it. But it's just that their understandings are a little bit shaped by ideology that they don't quite recognize themselves. But I don't think that's what the court where the court is. I think, you know, I don't think there's any difference between a Samuel Alito and, say, a Ted Cruz. You know, I think if Ted Cruz goes to the Senate, you know, he's openly like, you know, I'm here to, you know, to advance my agenda. You know, I'm, I'm pro-choice and I'm going to try to, you know, make the laws reflect that. And, and I think that's exactly like where a Samuel Alito is. It has really nothing to do with, you know, starting with a, some good faith effort to interpret the Constitution and and then and then have being a little bit captive to his own attitudes I, I think it's more like he has an, a straightforward legislative agenda and then he's reverse engineering his constitutional interpretations to, to fit that straightforward legislative agenda so so of course it's good that this is exposed I'm glad that this leak happened you know it's I've always thought it was good when we get leaks from the um, executive branch and the um, uh, um, legislative branch and you know I think the current court is is you know every bit as political as those. And so leaks serve the public interest. So what about for the long term? So again, I I see this as potentially being a turning point in the way the court might behave as we move forward in the sense that I don't think you can necessarily put the genie back in the bottle. In short, that it is and maybe now will more overtly be a political institution. Yeah, but I think that genie got out of the bottle a while ago. So it's really just whether we're shedding light on the genie or not now. So so the, the idea that this will make the justices more political, um, yeah, I mean, maybe. But, you know, if they're already 99 percent as political as they could be, then then what, you know, what difference is it if they, you know, if they become one percent more political than before? And uh, and I think it's it's good that the public understand it that way. I mean, I think I think it would be good if Congress started using the tools that it had to rein in the court a little bit more. And, and you know, if, if this pushes that ball forward, that, that's much more important um, to, to the public interest than, you know, whether the uh, whether the court is, is was somehow, you know, going to going to going to not go that last one percent to become a 100 percent political body instead of just a 99 percent political body. I guess maybe I don't see it quite as as. Um... Having been 99% in that way, I was thinking more, I had a, a professor, he was very intelligent on this. Now, he was looking more primarily at, at, at the presidency, but he often said, look, when you're looking at these kinds of shifts, there's this kind of qualitative shift that we can see occur, but there's always kind of a tipping point moment that, that pushes an institutional body over the edge. And it's hard to know what it's going to be until you get to that moment. So I, I was kind of looking at oh. it through. Uh, yeah. Okay. I see. Through, well, through yeah, I, would, I would say to me, there's a lot of candidates for what moment that was. But the one I'd probably point to in terms of the current court is um, when uh, when Mer- Merrick Garland couldn't get his confirmation hearing. You know, I would say that was the moment and that, you know, when Merrick Garland couldn't get his confirmation hearing, that really just exposed that, um, you know, the court had hardened as as just a third political branch. Well, I'm going to have to uh, pause us there because we have come to the end of our ad-supported review. Now, that means if you would like to hear the rest of our stories, and, and this includes another leak coming out about the U.S. intelligence community, uh, additional cases in dealing with the First Amendment in Puerto Rico, uh, dealing with the Boston flag, dealing with J.D. Vance and what's happening in elections, we would love for you to do that. And you're going to do that by becoming a supporter with the politics guys. So how do you want to become a supporter? Well, you can head to patreon.com slash politics guys and support us there. Or you can head to our web page, which is thepoliticsguys.com slash support. So if you head to either one of those locations, you'll be able to get our full without ads show, including all the rest of the stories. This also includes other things like being able to get to us with uh, Discord and whatnot. But if you want to understand all that, again, head to patreon.com slash politics guys. If you are not in a financial position at this moment to be able to support the show, but you would like to be able to listen to the full show as well, we understand that. So if you would just send an email to mike at politicsguys.com, we'll hook you up with the full show anyway. So if you're interested again in, in continuing on with us, you can head to patreon.com slash uh, uh, politicsguys, or you can head to thepoliticsguys.com slash port.